All right, tonight, take your Bibles if you would. Let's look to Revelation chapter 3. When I was training for ministry, I was already at a church that had long been established and had really come through some of its more challenging seasons in the life and growth of a church. And as I was training, it was always on my heart and mind, you know, that day when I might be asked by the Lord to serve in a church somewhere and, and be able to be a part of serving with God's people and, and grow a ministry of faithful light in a community, gospel ministry. And of course, I knew I was, I was um, committed to what really does grow a church. It isn't cleverness. It isn't people. It isn't empire building. It isn't establishing yourself in terms of your personality or those kinds of things. It isn't really even, even the, you know, the multiplicity of people that come to a church and try to make it whatever they want in the culture of the church. What grows a church is one thing, the word of God proclaimed. It is proclaimed publicly. It is explained publicly. It is exhorted publicly, and then in the ministry, as people are transformed, then they are equipped to do the work of the ministry, and the work of the ministry then carries on, and the body is built up in love. This is what we're told in Ephesians 4, and I knew that. I, I was trained to know that. I was committed to it. I had seen it in the ministry where I cut my teeth, and yet I still was, I was inexperienced in seeing it happen where I would go, and when I arrived here, I, of course, really began to develop a, a heart for the people and the heart for the leadership that was here, and we began to work together on that very thing. And I loved GIBC. I loved Grace Emanuel so much, and my wife and I were knit in our hearts to the church right away, and, and we knew that if we just keep proclaiming God's Word, that God would deepen the roots of the church and, and whatever may come. And that's really what's happened. It's been a joy to watch it's also true that always lingering in the back of my mind were, were warnings that I received from mentors and those in ministry who'd been doing this for a long time, seasoned soldiers. They would always say, you know, the Word of God builds the ministry, and, and while it is a fortress against the onslaught, and while the Word of God will take the roots deep and cure the cement foundation, if you will, it is also true that as Satan comes to attack, the, the one sort of long-term hazard is that a well-taught church can get comfortable. Comfortable. If you've ever been overseas in very, very difficult places where the church of Jesus Christ requires uh, hard-fought battles, they often meet Americans who profess Christ from the church in America, and, and there's a bit of a furrowed brow often. And their questions are legitimate questions, but they wouldn't be the ones you would expect. They often ask, how do, you, how do you stay faithful in such a lavish, comfortable culture? How do you stay faithful when you're so well taught and yet so little challenged in where you live? It's a fair question. I've often wondered, as I said to you last time when we began the third chapter of Revelation, I've often wondered how long it would take before we'd be seriously challenged on this issue of getting comfortable. When you come to the third chapter, there is the next letter being delivered, and it is delivered to a church of which it is said that they have a reputation. 
Reputation seems to be one of vibrancy, a ministry that has something going on, powerful things going on in terms of their own ideas about it, powerful things going on in terms of the culture and the community's assessment of it. Active. All the other church letters, however, except one, Laodicea, just Sardis and Laodicea, are the only two that do not have a commendation. All the other letters have a commendation before the condemnation and the call to repentance. Just Sardis and just Laodicea are given no commendation at all. Why? Because here you have a serious issue. You have a sin that has begun to permeate this congregation, and it has blinded them. Not too far off, was the same problem in Laodicea. Laodicea was the lukewarm church. Here you have in this church a name that they are alive, verse 1, but they're dead. Their personal and public reputation was that they believed themselves to be a light to the city. They believed themselves to be a gospel influence and a ministry worthy of notice. Churches think this all the time. We're a ministry worthy of notice. And this church, however, obviously become pragmatic. To a large degree, it had become pragmatic and culturally savvy. Enough for the surrounding city culture to warm to them. Jesus had warned back in Luke uh, chapter 7, Beware when all men speak well of you. Well, the culture around the church here in Sardis, the community of the city, the, the people of the town were speaking well of the church. They had a, a reputation for being active. And so they'd obviously developed some sort of savvy in the culture, some sort of pragmatism. They were accepted as useful to the community. They were probably well spoken of by city officials, having no doubt made enough compromises so as to fit in and get along and, and be a benefit to the city despite their religious message. Somehow that was their reputation. That was how they viewed themselves. It was their public reputation and their private reputation. Hey, we're, we're a church that we're alive. We have a name. We have a name in this town, a name in this city. And the city likes us. The community likes us. The city officials like us. We fit in. We get along. That seems rather comfortable. Nobody wants to invite trouble. I certainly don't. I certainly want a place where, you know, we, we sort of couch it in American terms. Oh, we have the freedom, you know, freedom. Freedom to really worship the way we want to worship. I, I'm okay with using that terminology, but we sometimes use that terminology to sort of uh, cover over what really are fears in our hearts about what we'd like to demand. We'd like to demand the comfort and safety in which we live. We'd like to demand a ministry where we could like we did today, come to church and not have any threat. But if you're not careful, if you begin to love those things, you can end up like Sardis. What was their actual spiritual condition? Verse 1, they're dead. Wow, they're dead. This is the... Uh, this is the sin, as I said last time, of complacency. They had become complacent. Somehow they had, had worked their way into a busy reputation, both in their own minds and in the community, but Jesus says of them, you are complacent. Remember I gave you some, some evidences of complacency. I'll just review them for you. 
In a, in a well-taught church, you could fall into the sin of theological sophistication. In other words, just like 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs you up. Instead of being humbled by the truth, we're to tremble at God's word. God's people are always to tremble at his word. That's what the Bible says. You're to be humble, Isaiah 66, 2. And yet, at times, we can have so much truth coming at us and yet get comfortable in our culture, comfortable in our society, even worldly in our heart's desires, and pretty soon, doesn't matter what's coming from the pulpit or our discipleship group or our conferences, we are too theologically sophisticated to even, to even ask the hard questions anymore. Oh, well, I've graduated past the elementary questions. When I was first a Christian, that's when I dealt with those hard-line questions about my character and what's going on in my private life and what are my thoughts like and am I taking thoughts captive? But I'm way past that now. We've graduated. Hey, I know the five solas. I don't deal with my, you know, early stuff. Don't you know I'm reformed? And then there was... Um, there was another evidence of complacency, and that's when sins become somewhat respectable. In other words, we become soft on repentance. Instead of always nurturing what 2 Corinthians 7 says, a sorrow unto godliness, we can kind of make some sins acceptable, respectable. Um, you know, can't get away from some of those weaknesses, so you start to become soft on all of your weaknesses. A third that I gave you, evidence of complacency, was confronting without restoration. In other words, pointing out sin in people's lives as if you're active and vibrant in your spiritual interests, but there's all kinds of rampant unforgiveness, all kinds of unloving behavior, all kinds of pride, holding grudges. So instead of caring and loving enough to confront, we, while taking heed to ourselves, we become proud finger pointers. And then there would be, like I mentioned this morning, in the Pharisaical model, majoring on externals, Matthew 23, 23. Always ignoring the heart and just sort of ritualizing on the outside. Another manifestation of complacency, or step to complacency, really, or sign of it, is that instead of setting your mind on things above and not on things of the earth, you love earthly comforts. When a church begins to love earthly comfort, love likability, love the, the uh, chief seats at the um, local charities, when a church loves to, to be spoken well of by the pagan society around them, you're in trouble. And that, of course, on the backside has that that sixth one I gave you, which was a fear of persecution. This was Sardis's problem. It obviously feared persecution and got into the place where they avoided it at all costs. Instead of like Matthew 10 says, fearing him who can kill both body and soul in hell and not fearing those who can kill just the body, instead of that, they fear persecution and become complacent. And perhaps there's even a warning here of another sign of complacency, and that's just a love of worldliness, just lowbrow living, just love of earthly pleasures. We're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to be separate from the world, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 17 says. What harmony hath light when darkness? We're to come out from them and be separate. And yet the church has, at least on the larger evangelical stage, just become immersed in worldliness. It's just amazing to me that we don't we don't really talk about how worldly the church is. We just think that's how ministry's done. That's how it's done. It's done cleverly. It's done with savvy. It's done in a way that looks like the culture, smells like the culture, acts like the culture. And yet, really, the Bible says it's just worldliness. 
We don't call it that anymore. That's complacent ministry. And clearly Sardis had an idolatry of reputation, an idolatry of reputation. They had a name that they were alive. They liked it. They liked the reputation. They, they were vibrant. Yet Romans 12.3 says that they're to remember not to think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Listen, beloved, the church ought to be the place on the earth where you can actually experience real humility. Real, heartfelt humility. Which is produced by the Spirit. And I gave you that last one, complaining and grumbling. You know, I, I've often wondered how long is it going to take before the church starts to see this pushback because we, we get comfortable and then... And then God begins to ask things of us, persecution and tension and hostility, and, and we're not able to build what we want to build when we want to build it. We're not able to spread out and get the space we need when we want it, and, and there's this hassle and these things in the community that are troubling, and then there's this resistance down at the county, and there's all these struggles, and, and pretty soon you can get to the point where God is putting these things providentially on us, and we're raising up arguments against his purposes in our life. How long does it take for a church to get there? Instead of thinking about not doing anything with grumbling and disputing so we can be a light in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. Philippians 2. How does a church like Sardis get to the place where they do not know they're dead, they have this great name that they're alive, but in fact it's different? How do they have a reputation that they're vibrant and yet Jesus says your actual condition is that you're almost snuffed out? as to your influence. I mean, that's what concerned me the most about seeing a church build, is that we would get to the place where we would have these signs of complacency and not be able to see it, and it's all vibrancy so far as the neon sign out front, but you come in here and God has, has not been using us for influence at all, maybe for decades. And that frightens me. How does that happen? Well, as I said... Sardis had obviously become pragmatic to some degree, well-liked in the community. You say, what's pragmatism? Well, here's, here's a simple way to look at pragmatism. Pragmatism is, is when the end goal becomes mere window dressing in the name of cultural attraction. Then everything substantive will have to fade into the background or be completely eliminated. So when the end goal becomes cultural attraction and everything substantive goes to the background and everything else is just sort of window dressing. Yeah, whatever they like, whatever attracts them. So here's the net effect. Preaching then goes to the back burner. Preaching becomes entertainment to hold the attention of shallow minds and shallow convictions. Preaching becomes gamesmanship. It becomes uh, someone's ability to out of the gift of gab, hold an audience with clever techniques and rhetorical devices or, or whatever, just their ability to walk around the stage with some sort of dramatic antic. In pragmatism, preaching becomes entertainment, and body life, body life is built on superficial common denominators so that you never meddle in moral issues or ask for sacrificial service from somebody. So that's what happens in a pragmatic church. Body life becomes sort of the, the, the easy, common things we talk about, but we never meddle in the moral issues, and we never ask for sacrificial service that demands something of your life so that you die to self. Body life is just a club. It's just an easy club. Come in and out. It's, it's porous. It's really, there's no, 
There's no requirement coming in. There's no commitment required, any of that. You just sort of float. But man, it's vibrant. Everything's really going on. Well, we go to that church. That's the way it was in Sardis. And in a pragmatic church, not only is preaching entertainment, and not only is body life built on these superficial common denominators, but spiritual leadership is then all about personalities and inspirational cleverness. It's all about the the personality cult. You saw that in Corinth when they were all about their favorite apostle or disciple or preacher. Paul says, you're acting like little kids. There's another, here's another reality about pragmatism. Evangelism, which is supposed to be us being equipped and then scattering to evangelize, pragmatism turns evangelism into this social acceptance exercise. And so now we, we want the community to like us, so we help the less fortunate to flourish economically and culturally or communally and morally. It's all devoid of the Spirit, but that becomes our ministry. All the things that you can do without the Spirit. And the world can do them better. But we do them as a church because it makes us feel like like we're really useful in the community. I'll tell you something else about pragmatism. When, When a church becomes complacent and pragmatic, prayer becomes one of three things. Prayer either becomes mystical, in other words, all kinds of strange ideas about communing with God, talking with God, and how he answers prayer uh, ultimately happens because pragmatism is not faith. And where there is no faith, there is no understanding of trusting in God. And so what do you look for when you pray to the heavens and you have no faith? You have to make up sort of comforts and answers. And that's what you do. You start praying mystically and making up whatever God you believe you're talking to. So it's either mystical prayer in the church, or it is egotistical prayer, demanding things from God, as if he owes his people something, or it's just ritualistic prayer. It's just rituals, just repeating them, rote memory, ritually, so you feel better. That's essentially pragmatism, and that's what happened to Sardis, obviously. Preaching had become vibrant, yet entertaining, rather than substantive. Body life was active, yet a superficial body life that didn't meddle in moral issues. Spiritual leadership was clearly all about personalities. Evangelism was about getting involved in the community and having social justice and social acceptance. No doubt their prayers were maybe all three, mystical, egotistical, and ritualistic. Jesus says, this is your actual condition. This is it. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. And so we come to their desperate and immediate need. Their desperate and immediate need. I love verse 2. Wake up. (laughs) Just love it. Jesus says to the church, wake up. And strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Now stop right there. You have, you have here what the church now is called to do. And this is very important that we, we sort of think this through. The first thing they're called to do is to confess. The verb here, wake up, uh, it's translated several different ways in your translations. In the, in the Christian Standard Bible, it's be alert, become alert. Or in the New King James, be watchful, wake up or be awake. 
See, I believe this is a call to confess the sin of having become complacent. Wake up. To wake up, the church leaders and the congregation would have to see the warning that is given to them in this letter. And then just, just sort of tracing the line of repentance, they'd have to be stunned by the warning. What? We're, we're dead? Jesus says we're dead here? This whole time we thought we were alive? And the Lord himself is saying we're dead. They, they would have to be stunned, absolutely stunned. Then you would hope it would go to the next level. They're completely terrified at having been so blind. Just frightened. How could we have been so blind? Then, just following the progression, their heart then becomes broken, and they come to admit the sin and its rightful judgment. We don't deserve to have a ministry. We don't deserve to have a light in this city. All this stuff we've been doing, it's not useful. Jesus says it's dead, and everything else that remains is about to be snuffed out. It's about to die, he says. The only thing left to do then is cry out for God's mercy. So the first thing that they're told here, their desperate and immediate need, is to confess. Man, when you hear the assessment of Christ that you are dead and you're called here to be alert to that. Be alert to your deadness. Be alert to your blindness. Be alert to your pragmatism. That should stun the church. And it should frighten the church. How did we get here? And then notice... From confession, you have the normal course to forsake it. Strengthen the things that remain, verse 2. Strengthen them. Look, if there's any semblance of spirit-filled life anywhere in the church, strengthen what remains. What does that look like in someone's life, or what does it look like in the corporate assembly? Well, I can tell you, on a practical level for Sardis, it would have meant immediately that the leaders got together, having received this letter, and then they should have had some unified uh, discussion and come out of that discussion ready to, in the same unity, publicly repent. You say, what would they say? They'd stand up in front of the church and they'd say, we have led the church into compromise. Or they would say, the church has been compromising and we have been complicit be a public repentance. Sometimes this has to be in a church. I'll tell you what, as much as leaders might fear that, it would be a good thing. It would be a good thing if a church was blown and going and, and leaders got together having, having put their finger on the pulse of the core of the ministry and they've realized that they've either been complicit or they've led the church down this wrong path and the church has turned into this shallow place and then in a unified front, they come out of a meeting having been on their knees with tears and prayer and stood up and said, look, as leaders, we have to confess something to you because we have to strengthen the things that remain so we're gonna forsake the old. I've seen that happen. And it's, it's impressive. You say, well, doesn't that split the church down the middle? Sometimes. It's still necessary. You don't want Jesus killing your church. It's better that it's split than the Lord snuff it out. You know what would happen then? And I've seen this happen. Leaders 
um, begin to get scrutinized by the scriptures, by 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 as to the standards, and some of the leaders step away. Those that understand that they're unqualified, they lacked discernment, they led the church down a wrong path, they were mistaken, they weren't teaching the truth. Sometimes it's someone who goes to a conference and and hears the truth for the first time, and they were in a desperate condition. They go back to their church, and they walk right into their leadership meeting, and they say, look, I have learned some things. I've been teaching the wrong thing. This last year, I got a sweet email from a, from a pastor overseas, and he was real sweet. He wrote me, and he said, I've been trying to find you for a long, long time. Um, and I finally found you. And he said, years ago, <clears throat> it was almost 20 years ago by then, he said, I went to a seminar that you taught on, on the church. And he said, I was at the end of my rope. I was at the end of all of it. I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I just was discouraged and depressed. I, I was confused. I'd had this ministry, and it had been up and down, and I was done. It, was, it wasn't burnout as much as it was he, he believed that he couldn't be used of God. He was totally discouraged. He came to the seminar, and he heard the biblical principles for a philosophy of ministry and how you grow the church, and he, he just repented. And he went back to his church overseas, and he went to his leaders, and he said, I, I, I've been wrong. And uh, what was left of the church began to repent of their old ways to follow his example. And uh, so this last year, I got this email, and he was telling me this whole story. So we met at Shepherd's Conference. It was really sweet to meet him and, and uh, his family. And he invited me to come over there this next year to speak at their conference on uh, ministry and... and um, He's just a delightful guy. And he said, you know, it turned the church upside down and turned, turned everything around. We've had a vibrant ministry for 20 years. It's just been absolutely incredible. You know, sometimes it's just a great thing. If Sardis could, could hear what the Lord is saying, they would come to confess this and wake up and then repent and strengthen what remains. And the way to strengthen what remains is those leaders would repent and then the congregation could follow suit and it would divide those that need to go and those that were, are going to stay. And then the unqualified leaders would step down. You know, that takes humility for somebody who's been in leadership to step away and say, I'm not qualified. I've just realized that. And then new, qualified, proven, faithful leaders get appointed. And then the congregation repents of every expression of complacency and they repent of seeing their name as something. They admit that it's worthless. It's just a facade. That they've become theologically sophisticated. They've been soft on repentance and sins have become respectable. They've confronted without restoration. They've majored on externals. They've loved earthly comforts. They've feared persecution, loved worldliness. They've loved the, the earthly pleasures and They've been idolaters about their own reputation, and they began to complain against God. They repent of all of it. And if you do that, notice, he says, strengthen those things that remain which were about to die. If you do that, there's, there's words of great comfort in the midst of dire straits. It's not completely dead yet. And even Jesus says, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. You know, I read that statement, and I think, this, this is what I think. God has a plan for every local assembly. There are deeds that God wants completed in his sight 
for the, the people of God, and that has to include the local assembly because it's an official assembly. It has leaders. It has shepherding. It has people. It has gifts. It is equipping in order to be sent out into the community, the visible local church. God has a plan for it. And there are deeds that need to be completed in the sight of God. So just think about it in terms of Grace Emmanuel. God has a plan for the gospel witness of each local assembly, just like Grace Emmanuel. And he's working. He's working in our ministry and through our ministry in all the meticulous details of our local church corporate life. And he's accomplishing what he wants for our witness to the lost culture around us. There is a completed status God is working toward as to all that he has planned in setting our local church in place. I love that. That's comforting to me. And he says this to Sardis. I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. There are things that are about to die. You're not dead yet, but I want you to confess and I want you to forsake. And then notice verse 3. So remember what you have received and heard. So, so what is the principle here? Restore faithful preaching. They had stopped preaching faithfully. They'd stopped exposition. They'd stopped being bold. They'd stopped being clear. They got murky. It was more about the drama of the speaker. Uh, people got tired of, of you know, expositions consecutively, verse by verse, or book by book, or theologically driven expositions where, where the truth is spoken very, very challengingly. They got tired of that. They became soft. They became entertaining. It was all cool. I mean, half the time I get on the, I get on the internet, I can't even take 10 minutes of the drivel in vibrantly named places. I just can't take it because it's not faithful to the text. And you know, these places are filled with people. And Jesus says, no, I want you to remember what you received and heard. Restore faithful preaching. Restore faithful exposition. You know, if you're new to our church and you've not been familiar with Bible exposition, maybe you have. I mean, the internet's pretty prolific now. It's good that most people can have a familiarity with some of it. But, but there's a reason we do what we do. It's, it's really just to get human beings out of the way and be a herald of the truth and a mouthpiece for God and explain the text to you. If you go away from sermons thinking, that guy's really cool, that guy's really funny, which wouldn't happen here when I'm in the pulpit, but clearly, <laughs> if there were something that, that entertained you, that would be a mistake. What you ought to go away imagining is that, wow, that text, wow, Christ, wow, those principles, wow, worship, wow, my heart, wow, conviction. This is rich. That's what you ought to go away imagining. And Jesus says, restore the preaching, Sardis. Restore faithful preaching, Open the text. Preach it to God's people. Stop entertaining them. Stop imagining that you can cleverly bring a crowd, keep a crowd, or make the church attractive to the culture. Get away from that. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2? He said, look, I know what you want in this Greco-Roman culture. I know what you want. You want all kinds of philosophy, erudite questions. You want to be wowed with the cool speeches and the phrases being turned at just the right time and all of these esoteric ideas. You want them because you love to identify with somebody who's really intelligent and you like to say, I go listen to the intelligentsia. I go to the ancient TED Talks. I'm somebody. 
And Paul says, I know what you want, but I'm not going to give that to you. He said, I'm not going to give that to you. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, a dead Messiah who rose from the dead that you must believe in. I'm going to preach that. And when he got up at the Areopagus, he preached it, and they just said, who is this idle talker? He just babbles on and on. What, what nonsense. We're interested in the, the questions that mankind can float up into and dabble in and wow ourselves and take glory from one another. You come along and talk about some guy from Nazareth who claimed to be God and died on a cross in ignominious death, and then you say he rose from the dead? That's what you want to talk about here? Paul said, absolutely. You know why? Because I do not want your faith to rest on something clever in me. Jesus says, Sardis, restore faithful preaching. Restore it. Because it is... Faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ that changes people. Isn't that true? I mean, you got to be kidding. If you're coming here for entertainment from the pulpit, all we do is open the Bible and say for 45 to 47 to 50 minutes to 55 minutes for some of these guys on staff, an hour and a half. Who knows? But anyway, <laughs> all we say is open your Bibles, engage your minds, Open your heart to Christ and let's go to it. I mean, that is not going to draw today's entertainment-loving crowd. But Jesus says, if you want to really remain with any kind of influence and not have me snuff out what, what little light there is in a ministry, then repent and restore faithful preaching. And then he says, I want you to do something else. I want you to nurture faith and obedience Nurture faith and obedience. Notice verse 3. Remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Keep it and repent. Here it is. This is body life that disciples people in observing the commands of Christ, faithfully walking in them, growing in them. This is a, this is a discipling church that Jesus wants, and he says, I want you to nurture that faith. I want you to preach the truth, remember what you've heard, and I want you to keep it, nurture the keeping of it. You know what that means? That means that every single day that you grow in Christ, the Lord Jesus wants you to take what you have learned and get in the flow of passing that to someone else he brings to your doorstep. And he wants you to find those who know more than you and learn from them. There is not a day in your Christian life where that should not be your prayer, whether or not it's a practical meeting, whether or not you meet up with someone or you just pray for them or they pray for you or it's just a phone call or text. There's not a day in your life where that shouldn't be the course of your life. To know God's truth and keep it and nurture faith and obedience in someone else. We stimulate one another to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, because the day is drawing near. The judgment day is drawing ever closer. It is speeding up on our way there. And he says, you see that. You see that the day is drawing nearer. Paul will say in Ephesians 5, you just redeem the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Redeem the time. Purchase it. Hold on to it. Spend it wisely. 
Sardis, restore faithful preaching and nurture faith and obedience. Keep it. Truly repent. And then I love this. He warns them. Be warned. If you do not, and then we'll just go down the list, confess and forsake and restore the things that remain that are useful and then nurture faith and obedience in those things. If you do not, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Be warned. Be warned. I will snuff out your light. I will come to you. You will regret not listening to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who thought you were saved and attached yourself to the church are going to realize you're an apostate and you're taken outside because you never really were of the church and the seeds of apostasy were planted in a pragmatic ministry. How many times has that happened? People say they love Jesus. They end up in some pragmatic church because it all looks like it has a reputation that it's alive, but inside it's dead and their apostasy is confirmed over time. They never want another thing to do with Christ. They leave. Happens all the time. Or what about the true believers in that church? Yeah, you're vibrant. Yeah, you, there are some. You notice that in verse 4. You have a few people in Sardis who haven't soiled their garments. They haven't become worldly. They haven't become complacent. A few people. There's a few. But what's going to happen to them if the body corporately doesn't repent and restore these things that remain? Well, then what was about to die is actually going to die. Jesus is going to cut its head off, and the church is done, and these few who haven't soiled their garments are going to have no church. No equipping. They probably have to start a new one or go to another city and find God's people. Who knows how vulnerable they'll be? Turn over to 1 Thessalonians 5 for a moment. Paul rattles off a sort of a machine gun, rapid fire instruction to the Thessalonians. <clears throat> this, is, this is sort of like a, <laughs> this is sort of an expanded list of what Sardis should be doing. And he gives it to the Thessalonians. Now remember, the Thessalonians was a model church, so Thessalonica was a model church, and yet he keeps saying to them all through this letter, excel still more, excel still more. Watch yourself. Be alert. Careful. Don't get involved in sexual immorality. Don't be fearing that the day of the Lord has come and gone and your, your loved ones missed it. Comfort one another with words that those who died in Christ are going to be raised first, and then you'll be raised, and thus will always be with the Lord. You need to make sure that you're following the word of God, regardless of persecution, chapter 2. You need to encourage those who've come to you and ministered to you on our behalf. You're our joy and crown, he says to them. You're growing, but stay faithful. I heard that your faith is staying strong at such an early level, but yes, you need to wait fervently for the Lord and his return. Stay faithful. So in a church that's really a model church, and he says excel still more, notice what he says in verse 12, chapter 5. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So that's how you treat the leadership. Then live in peace with one another we urge you, brethren, here's the body life. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Don't repay evil for evil, 
But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. What a great thing that would do in the church. Just that verse. Verse 16, rejoice always. Man, we could use that admonition. Sardis could have used that admonition. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. And don't despise preaching. At the time, revelation or prophetic utterances. Don't despise the word proclaimed. Don't despise God's revelation. Don't quench the spirit. That's what Sardis did. They quenched the spirit. The spirit isn't operating in a place where your heart is not humble. It doesn't matter whether you have a name that you're alive. They stopped examining everything carefully, he says. Examine everything carefully, verse 21. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Be warned. Be warned, he says. Back to Revelation. What does he say to Sardis here to tie this off? Well, he says there are a few people in Sardis, verse 4, who have not soiled their garments. That is to say, they have not gone out into the world. You don't see the stain of the world and pragmatism on their clothing. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They will walk with me in white. They will be proven pure. And then he makes the statement that if you are truly in Christ, you'll not only be proven pure, how are you proven pure? Well, in this life, you stay away from those things. When a church goes pragmatic, you stay away from it. You have discernment. You stay out of those things. I don't countenance pragmatism. I won't. I want to be, I don't want my garments soiled. I stay out of the culture. I stay out of the, the uh, attempt to make the church attractive. I want to stay out of the attempt to get the culture to speak well of me or our church. I'm not looking for a fight, but I certainly am going to take a stand. I, I, I don't want to default to trying to be likable. I don't want to do that. I want to be like these few who, who wouldn't go that way, even if it was just one or two of us. Why? Because in this life, I stay away from soiling my garments. I stay pure. I walk with the Lord in white. I'm walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which I've been called. And then he goes on now to talk about their hope and their endurance if they do this repenting. I love this. Verse 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. So the first thing he says is you're pure forever. You're not just pure by staying unsullied, but you're pure forever. True Christians will wear the garments of purity. This, by the way, appears in Revelation 19, 7 through 9, white robes. They're worn by those who are celebrating the victory of Christ with our Lord and Master Victory that Christ had over everything that stains, over sin, over death and Satan. White garments, they, as commentators all agree, they represent holiness and purity. So the first thing about their hope and their endurance is that they're pure forever. And I want that. I want that. I mean, I don't want to be in some pragmatic ministry where the, the usefulness and the light of the truth is getting... Is, is pretty close to being snuffed out. And then we die and we go to heaven and we're with Christ forever. What a, what a strange way to enter into the kingdom. Jesus said, when I come, will I find faith on the earth? 
When I come, will I find you being faithful? You don't know the hour when I come. When I come, will you be faithful? Or will you have squandered things? Will you come through the testing of Christ's character? 1 Corinthians 3, when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, will you come through that testing and, and your ash pile is bigger than the gold, silver, and precious stones that are refined by his character? I want to be pure in this life. I want to be pure forever. I want to enter the kingdom having overcome, Jesus says, and then possessed forever. Look at this. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. What an interesting statement. I call this being possessed forever. That is to say, he possesses me forever. There are, by the way, eight references in the New Testament to the book of life. Two of them refer specifically to the book of life that belongs to the Lamb, Jesus Christ himself. Seven of the references appear in this book itself, the book of Revelation, this vision that was given to John. And those whose names are written in the book of life are those who belong to God, those who have attained eternal life. Paul, by the way, refers to those who've labored alongside him as those whose names are in the book of life, Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. And again, he identifies the book of life as a record of the names of those who have eternal life. Same thing here in the letter to Sardis. It refers to the book of life in which the names of believers in the Lord are found. There are those who overcome the trials of life. They prove that their salvation is genuine. They haven't soiled their garments and this verse makes it clear that once the name is written there for the genuine believer, Jesus is promising here, you're possessed by God forever. It will never be blotted out. This is essentially teaching that you're secure. You're secure. The elect are secure. Those upon whom God has fixed his love are secure. So this is the Lord. He's speaking to the churches in, in Revelation. He promises to acknowledge before his own Father these who are written down. Revelation 20.15 conversely reveals the fate of those whose names are not written in the book of life. They have an eternity in the lake of fire. And the 17th chapter of Revelation, verse 8, clarifies when the names were written. It says, the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast. So there, there it is. The names of those who approve of the Antichrist are not found in the book of life. The names that are there were written before the world was created. That is the elect. We are eternally secure. And the promise here is that if you overcome, your election is, is proven and you will be pure forever and possessed by God forever. That is to say, you prove that you are secure. You will never be removed. Never. I love that. What a comfort. What a comfort. Some have argued in, from the Old Testament in Exodus 32-33 that there is the idea that God may remove someone's name from the book of life. In that passage, the Lord tells Moses, whoever sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. But it, it isn't a contradiction with the text here, as commentators tell us, because that which is referred to in the book of Exodus is the book of life itself the book of the living, the record of those who are alive, referenced in Psalm 69, 28. Here, you have a promise that that which was written before the foundation of the world 
my name, your name. We saw that in Luke's gospel. He wrote your name. It cannot be blotted out. Here is the very promise. If you overcome, you are the ones whom God has chosen. You are going to be pure forever, just like you stayed unsoiled in the world when the church in Sardis was heading one direction. You stayed unsoiled. You were pure on the earth, proving that you're Christ's child, and you are pure forever then, and you're possessed by him forever. What a comfort. And he adds here, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So you're not only pure forever, you're not, ever, not only possessed forever, but you're professed by, forever by God himself. He professes to know you. He professes that you are his own. He makes an unashamed profession before the holy angels that you belong to him. Christ himself confessing your name before the Father and before the angels. Oh, what will that moment be like when the Lord of glory himself, whose voice you and I have never heard, you never heard his voice. Somebody tells you they heard the Lord's voice, then um, they must be claiming that the second coming has happened. But on that day, you're going to hear his voice, and he's going to profess your name before the Father just like he does now as his elect. But the promise is that as you overcome all the way to the end, Jesus will confess your name forever before his Father and before his angels. Jesus Christ standing before the God of the universe and the holy angels and saying your name. He's mine. She's mine. It's like Luke 9, verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. How sad that, that, you, that churches would turn toward pragmatism in a community and ultimately be ashamed of the hostility that comes when you boldly pro proclaim Christ. If you'd be ashamed of that, but on the last day, Jesus Christ will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, ashamed to have associated with that church. And apparently that was Sardis. We have no record that this church continued. So verse 6 was a wash. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. A letter from Christ through a messenger who was included in the sin, bringing the letter, bringing the urgency from the Apostle John, having seen the vision on the island of Patmos. And this is the specificity of it. You, you say you're alive, but you're dead. This community thinks you're alive, but you're dead. And you're about to die. All that remains is about to be snuffed out. And the deeds that I had planned for you have not been completed in the sight of my God. And so wake up. Repent. Don't be pragmatic. Don't be complacent. Don't leave the preaching. Don't attract the culture. Don't jump to those things that make your life comfortable. Don't do that. Live for me. Stay unstained. Unsoiled. Come out from them. Be faithful. Reach out in love. But speak the truth indeed in love. Let the chips fall where they may. And if you overcome, 
as pure as the Spirit of God is continuing to make you as you separate from the world and from pragmatism and sin, you will be pure forever. And as purchased and possessed by God as you are right now, you will be marked out as His forever. And as and as unashamed is, as his profession is of your name before the Father, now it will be that way in eternity. He will, before his Father and the holy angels, say your name. You belong to him. He's not ashamed to call you friend, brother, sister. And he who has an ear, let him hear. What does that mean? Faith. He who hears in faith. Are you a pragmatist at heart? Have you grown complacent in your Christian life? What about Grace Emanuel? We just had an elders sort of day of assessment, and we do talk about these things, you know. We try to evaluate it. We always um, are burdened for that and try to put our finger on the pulse of our church at its core and see what's happening. I know the push from the culture. I know the, that you have friends and relatives that attend some of these other churches and, and they have become little sardises in their community. They have a name that they're alive, but there isn't a lot of real substantive life going on because they stop preaching and they stop being faithful to those things and, and you get pressure from them. Oh, you go to that church. Oh, wow, you know, that, that church is hard and isn't well-liked in the community. and I know the pushback you get, but what's happening in your heart? Are you complacent in your heart? Have you become the kind of person who can't be talked about in terms of talked to about the, about the issues of your heart because you're theologically sophisticated and you love earthly comforts? Maybe you love the world. Call to wake up, confess and forsake. And then overcome, because if you overcome, nothing will be sweeter, nothing more glorious than to finally arrive as Jesus prayed to his Father to do. Bring us so that we see his glory, and seeing his glory, we're told that he will be unashamed of us. He will call us his own, his friends, his possession. And he won't be ashamed when he comes in his glory, but he will proclaim our name. He'll confess our name. He'll say, that's someone that I have redeemed. They belong to me for all eternity. Nothing sweeter. Nothing sweeter. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the message from this letter. It's a stern message. It's a sobering message. It's a warning. We have a, a great environment and there's lots of new life in this environment. <clears throat> and we do, by your providences, have a name in the community. There is a reputation. But Lord, it really doesn't matter what the community says of us or what we think of ourselves. It only matters what we would hear from you were you to write us a letter like this. Because we see the letter you wrote to Sardis and it's already convicting. It's already challenging us. This letter is not just for the ancient church in Asia Minor, but its principles transcend time and they hit us right between the eyes. We do not want to be complacent. We do not want to be caught off guard 
We do not want to be found blinded, imagining that we're alive when we're really not. And so, Lord, as we, as we proclaim the truth, as we enjoy the truth, as we, as we try to implement the truth, if we find seeds of complacency or we find in our hearts a love of comfort or a fear of man, or we're unwilling to let your truth demand things of us, we're unwilling to build conviction as we ought, if there's some way in which we have gotten comfortable or we've wanted a church with more savvy, we've wanted a more entertaining place, we've wanted a pulpit that's more clever or a ministry that is more attractive, please forgive us. We repent of such things. We know you have a plan for our local ministry, and, and it needs to be completed. And so we want you to do your work, whatever that might take, even if it means to call us up short in those things that, that must be strengthened. Thank you for the wake-up call from this letter to Sardis. Lord, don't let us be the kind of church where there's no commendation. And don't let us be the kind of ministry in time where there's just a few who don't soil their garments. May we be a place where there might be a few who have a pragmatic heart, but they can't last without being challenged, changed, or they go on their merry way because we want a church that doesn't just have a name that it's alive. Maybe the world would consider us dead, but we want to know what you think of our church. We want to know what you say of our ministry. We want to know if you attend Grace Emmanuel Bible Church because you're honored here and your word is spoken here. You're the Lord of your people. And so we ask for you to help us to stay away from those tendencies, both in our lives and corporately, and we pray it in your precious name.